0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth podcast. Before we go any further, we are dangerously close to the holiday season. Yesterday was was Halloween, which I always just try to ignore. Now we've got Thanksgiving coming up, and we've got Christmas coming up, and or whatever uh, version of those holidays that you celebrate. They're typically holidays for just about everyone. Anyway, from childhood, we've always been told, Christmas or holidays are about X, Y, and Z. They're about giving. They're about family. They're about love. They're about all these things. And I'm here to tell you that is all completely inaccurate. It's a fraud. Holidays are about one thing, eggnog. And for those of you who know me for any length of time, you realize that my commitment and devotion to all things eggnog basically transcends the rest of my life. And for those of you out there who are eggnog snobs, who say that it has to be made with whole milk or cream or goat milk or yak butter or whatever, I'm here to say that there is no bad eggnog. I've never had bad eggnog, regardless of what it was made with, homemade, bootleg, ditch ditch eggnog. It doesn't matter. Get your hands on it. Consume as much as humanly possible during, well, from now until the end of the year. My birthday is also tossed in there as well, so make sure you slug a gallon or two for my birthday. Okay, let's start out here. We uh, we've got uh, the same format that I've I've always got. We're going to start with a the hero, then we're going to talk about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, some topics, whatever. The hero this week is due to the fact that I am living in a house that has television, and uh, I have not had what I would call normal television, cable television in at least 15 years so this is a novelty for me Um, like 15 years ago when I got rid of cable 99 percent of what's on television and cable television is complete garbage I mean it's so bad that it makes me question humanity in general Uh, but there are a couple of bright spots here and there but um, we're gonna talk about some of these things but the hero this week is a guy named Roger Federer and it doesn't matter if you like tennis or don't like tennis or whatever I saw a stat I was watching Federer, who's got to be like late 30s now, which is kind of long in the tooth for a pro tennis player. But he played in the final of a tournament that I think was in Switzerland. It was a tournament that he had ridden his bicycle to as a kid, to ball boy, for the pros at the time. And he has now won this tournament, I want to say, 10 times. But he was playing a young guy in the final who's a rising, rising star, and Federer just absolutely dismantled this guy. It was not even remotely close. And I sat there watching probably no more than 20 minutes of this tennis match, and I was so astounded by how good he still is and how much better he is than 99.9% of the rising stars in tennis. But the other stat that caught my eye was that his career prize money was $127 million. Now, I was a consistently D- student in math, but that to me seems like a lot of money. I'm, I'm not a numbers guy, but $127 million seems like a lot. And then you throw in the idea that the prize money he could probably, you know, give back and still not be hurting financially because of all the endorsement deals. But the part about Federer that I think is interesting is sort of how he carries himself. And I'm sure the way he carries himself rubs other players the wrong way or some, some players the wrong way. But, you know, he speaks four, five, six languages. He's a great ambassador. He does advertising, but it's not too crazy over the top or like selling stuff that you know You know, he's not using or cars he's not driving. Maybe he is in, in Europe, but I just don't see it here. But anyway, for somebody who's been, who's been killing it that long, uh, I just wanted to tip my hat and say, Jesus, I mean, just 38. going back to when I was 38, the rigors of playing on a professional tour, my body would have never held up. Not that I was I'm in remotely the same kind of shape that he is, but anyway... You get the point. Okay. Moving on. That was point one point. Number two is going to go back to Facebook because this past week, saw Mark Zuckerberg himself sitting in front of uh, Congress and it was ugly. They were putting the screws to him and he did not have answers. And my question about this is, is a couple of, there's a couple of questions. I have is one, if you're on Facebook, if you're still on it, what justification do you use to still be on that platform? Because I can't find a justification that makes sense to me. So if you're one of those people that says, well, I do it just to keep in touch with family, there are other ways. And we all know what Facebook's doing behind the scenes. We know what they've done in the past. We know what they're continuing to do. We know that they're promoting the right-wing agenda. They're promoting uh, anti-Semitic sentiments, at least in the United States. And More than half of Americans get their news from Facebook, which is just mind-blowing after what we know. Not to mention we know they played a role in the 2016 election, and they're probably going to play a role in the 2020 election. And they have a really, really, really hard time telling the truth. And so I'm just so mind-boggled why people are still on this network that I don't get it. And look, I have tons of family members who are on it all the time. And they're totally, they're like, oh, I don't care if they're selling my data. They do actually care. They just don't know the extent at which Facebook is, is taking from them. And they're busy and they have lives and they have kids and they're doing things. But somebody give me an answer about this, any of this. Okay, moving on. Our third point. First point was hero. Second point was Facebook crimes. Third point is uh, a little political touch base here. And again, this goes back to now the fact that I'm living in a house that has, that has news, like uh, cable news. So I have been watching Fox News. I've been watching C-SPAN, which is the most just agonizing program in the history of the world because our government is so lame. And I've been watching MSNBC. And uh, I've been watching what's happening in the political system based through these news channels. And again, um, man, I'm really glad I didn't have TV for 15 years because it, from someone who hasn't seen this in so long, looking at it now, and I have friends who are hardcore Fox viewers, and I have friends who are hardcore MSNBC viewers. And to me, both of those networks are pointless, because Fox is so clearly right, and they, they just fabricate their agenda. And the, the left doesn't necessarily fabricate the agenda, but they preach to the choir in kind of a preachy way. And I think the only people who are going to watch MSNBC are really diehard left. And my point with this is, this doesn't work. Corporate media doesn't work as a delivery mechanism for news. And then you throw in what I just talked about before, which is people are getting their news from Facebook, which is the Wild West. Nobody's, nobody's controlling that. Nobody's editing that. Nobody's vetting, vetting that. It's just it's nonsense. And yesterday, we had this vote for impeachment. And I looked at what happened in the House. And, of course, all the Democrats were yay and all the Republicans were nay. And I just think to myself, is this where we're at as a country is that we've become so partisan that maybe you know 20 people on either side go, mm, I'm a little skeptical, or 20 people on the other side say, oh, I was skeptical, but now there's enough evidence. No, we can't do that. It's a 100% party line. And I look at Trump himself, and I don't think there's anything that he could do or say that would impact his base. I think the base is going to be there regardless. And um, I just think that the two-party system we have is failing. And I think the, the shocking thing for me was tuning into these television networks and looking at Fox for the first time in God knows how many years and MSNBC for the first time and just seeing them on opposite sides of the spectrum canceling each other out because they're just kind of too uh, partisan in one way or the other. And uh, there has to be a better way of of getting news. And if there is a better way, let me know about it. Okay, moving on. I'm getting choked up about the news. Because remember, at one point in my life, I was a newsman, a newspaper man, out collecting the news, uh, everything that was fit to print for for you folks to consume. Yikes, that was a long time ago. Okay, so I've been, the next point is about camera equipment, just briefly. um, Someone I know who I like what they do, I respect their work, is using a Leica Q, and I realize now that there's a Leica Q2. Don't worry, I'm not going to buy one of these because it's too expensive. Um, And the Fuji X-Pro3 came out, and then we have the Fuji 50R. And so the reason I'm talking about this, the only reason, is because what I shoot and how I shoot has changed dramatically in the last few years. And I was talking to um, yesterday, I was talking to the director of Beyond Clothing, a guy named Rick Elder, and we were talking about photography. And he was talking about a project that he was working on that I was helping him edit. And he's relatively new to photography. And I said, you know, hey, I was doing this every single day for 27 years. That's what I did. I got up in the morning and I planned projects and I did projects or assignments or I tried to find projects or assignments. That's all I did. And for the last 10 years, that's not all I do. That's a teeny tiny fraction of what I do because I work full time. And then I have all kinds of other projects and interests. And then photography has now is now maybe 5% of my life. So I want to kickstart my New Mexico project, but with a slightly different angle. And I look at the future and I look at what this angle is and I realize I'm going to be spending a ton of time in transit and in gaining access and in explaining myself and basically easing into these parts of the community or locations. And I'm going to be spending very little time making pictures. This is going to be a onesie twosie project where in a week I might make one frame that will end up being part of the project. And then I might go a month without shooting. And then I go back in the field and I might make one frame that'll work. And so I'm slowly building one frame at a time. Because in the old days I would just go and I would shoot day after day after day. And I would rather quickly make a body of work. I don't have that time or that access anymore. So the camera, it would be nice to be able to get in the field and make larger file sizes. So 24 megapixel right now is okay. But something like the 50R with a single lens would be really nice to be able to build these onesie twosies. And of those three cameras, the Leica Q2, the Fuji X-Pro, and the 50R, the 50R is the one that's jumping out at me as the one that's probably going to work the best. So what I'll do is I'll wait for the whatever new version of that comes along, and then I'll look for a beater used version of the 50R, because, again, I, I can't justify spending that kind of money for how little I'm able to actually use it. Even though the project that I'm going to begin to work on, which is a derivative of my New Mexico project, Una por Verdad, which I... I showed that film a couple of days ago that Fleming did. This is a derivative of that, meaning there's one small concept of that story that's now going to become the primary focus. And I can see working on this for the rest of my adult life that I'm living in New Mexico because it's a topic that covers the entire country. Even though I'm not going to be covering the entire country, I'll be just working here. But it's something that's gotten worse in the last multi-decades. And so there's a writer that I know here in town who's written extensively about it, multiple books, uh, he created a nonprofit foundation in regard to the same topic, and so I'm hoping to work with him and to really go out and make some progress on this. Okay, so if you have a, one of those three cameras that you're saying, hey, idiot, don't buy the 50R, buy the X-Pro, or, Jesus, what a loser, don't buy the X-Pro, you have to buy a Leica because then you can get a beret and you can say, poof, I made a picture. So either way. All right, moving on, point four is I want to give you an update on a collaboration that I've been working on for over a year, believe it or not. And I still have a mountain of work in front of me to get this off the ground. And of course, I'm talking about AG23, which is a zine collaboration. And for those of you who don't know what a zine is, a zine is an informal magazine or an underground magazine, as some people like to say. And the zine community has been around for a long, long time, but it has really exploded in the past decade. And a lot of times now you'll go to artbook art book fairs around the country, and there's a huge zine community that travels to those events. You also have zine-specific events, et cetera. So AG23 was a a merger, a collaboration between Beyond Clothing, which is based in Seattle, and Blurb, and primarily me. So Blurb is yes in the background. And Blurb, is their contribution to this project is they're giving us, meaning Rick from Beyond and I, at-cost printing for the zine. So we're not getting it for free. We're paying for it. So it's many thousands of dollars to get this printed. And AG basically came about because I met Rick through a mutual friend. And the moment I sat down, he said, hey, we should do a collaborative project. It should be Blurb and Beyond, and we should do a zine. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, I just came out of Wright field. And I'm busy, and I thought, you know, I don't really know, I don't really see this big connection there between the two companies, et cetera. But the more he talked about it, the more I thought, you know, this is probably something I should try. It's different. And how rare it was, to find a collaboration partner who didn't ask for impossible things. You know, Hey, can you, you want to do a collaboration project? This is what normally happens. Someone approaches, Hey, let's do a collaboration project. Oh, that sounds good. Now just give us hundred thousand dollars. And I'm like, I don't have hundred thousand dollars and blurb's not going to give us hundred thousand dollars. So that's not going to work. And with this collaboration with AG 23, the exact opposite, Rick was like, look, this is something we should do. We should print a zine with the primary mission of promoting understanding through art and dialogue. That was the that's the mission statement, which it still is. And he's like, I'll you know I'll handle this. We'll 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 cover the bases financially to get this printed. And for those of you who don't know, this is a monumental undertaking because you have to. There's all kinds of legal hoops you have to jump through. Then we had to create a website, so there has to be a design team. Then you have to find a designer to design the zine, which we did. Then you have to create. We created a line of or Beyond has created a line of merchandise. To go to accompany this, which I'll talk about more later there's, a, there's an end-game goal with that which is to basically be able to create micro grants for, for contributors either to finish a project or start a project, etc. But you also have to uh, have a design team ready. you have to have editorial team you have to which is basically Rick and I. Then you have to create the microsite which we did. you have to have designers for that which they found. And then we have an open submission portal online. So if you go to ag23mag.com you'll see, You, as a member of the public, can submit, and what we're interested in is not portfolios. We're interested in people that have a story to tell, a story that will promote understanding through art and dialogue, and that's it. So the topics that we have for issue one, which is going to go to the designer at the end of November, they're all over the place. We have, you know, I can't even begin to talk about the range of content, and the goal was that we had no rules about contributions the rule was there, there were no rules. If we found a story about you know coffee that we liked, we're going to run it. If we found a story about plastic, it's going to run. If we found a story that had a, a humorous angle, great. It doesn't matter. It's just about something important or interesting that's going to further the conversation. And the other thing is we're not taking a political tact and saying like, you know, let's say we do a, a story about the border. We want to try to show both sides and let you make your own decisions. Instead of saying, hey, this is the angle that we're coming from and you know, we're trying to make this element look good and this element look bad or vice versa. It's just putting the information out there and let you, letting you decide. So if you haven't seen ag23mag.com, go, t- go take a look. And just know the website won't be fully released until the printed zine is ready. So right now on the website, you're only going to see one tiny story, which is about the game of Go that I wrote and photographed, it's two photos and a, sh- and a short copy block. That was just sort of a placeholder. There should be another gallery released pretty soon, which is another placeholder gallery from me, because here's one of the interesting challenges so far, is that the the website and the zine itself, what you would contribute, is not about Blurb, it's not about Beyond, it's not about me, it's not about Rick. It's about you and your story and what you are trying to amplify, promote, or sell. So for example, if I did a project, and photographers have been calling me and saying, tell me what to put on the microsite. And my response is, I can't tell you because it's not about me. I'm not, you know, is Blurb gonna see a profit on this? No, I mean, how that would happen, I'm not really entirely sure. I guess it's it's conceivable, but this isn't about promoting Blurb. It's not about promoting Beyond. It's about you saying, hey, I've got an interesting story that maybe the world or 2,000 people, which is the amount number of people, we're gonna print 2,000 copies each time, You know, maybe this is a story that will that someone else can relate to. Or maybe they're having the same issue and I can get a better understanding. Or, oh, this is a story I've seen before, but I'm telling it from a different angle. That's what we're after. So what goes on the microsite is what helps you promote the story you're trying to tell. That's it. It can be links, it can be images, it can be copy, it can be motion, a combination of all the above. And or it can just be, you know, saying, look, I put my story into the zine, and the microsite is just about me as an artist, so that if you engage with what was in the zine, then potentially you may engage with something else as, about me as an artist. So just something to keep in mind if you're going to submit. I highly <clears throat> encourage all of you to submit if you have a story, and again, I'm not looking for portfolios. It's more of tell us something, show us something, educate us about a topic that we may or may not know about. Okay. I'm like out of breath for some reason. Whew, man, this this uh, this podcast is taking it out of me. Okay, so the next three posts are, three points are all, all related, and they're about culture. Tourist culture, number one, gun culture, number two, and car culture, number three, because there have been all interesting stories in the last week about these things, one of which related, we're going to start with tourist culture. And the tourist culture story was about Cambodia, was about people being arrested in Cambodia for filming pornography somewhere near Siem Reap, which is where Angkor Wat temples are. Now, little known fact, in 1996, I was in a coffee shop in Laguna Beach with my mom, who had come out to visit. The one and only time my mom came to California when during the 23 years I lived there. My parents hated California. And we're sitting at the coffee shop, it's busy, and a couple walks out with their pastries and coffee and they have nowhere to sit and we had empty seats at our table and I said hey do you want to sit with us sure they sit down we start talking I say to the guy what do you do as Americans always do he says well I'm a lawyer in San Francisco but I spend most of my time in Cambodia I said really that's interesting I've always wanted to go there because the photography of the Vietnam War Larry Burroughs in particular was the photography that got me interested in being a photographer and that's why I'm sitting here He said, that's funny. I need a photographer because I'm opening a law school in Phnom Penh and we have to try to promote this. And I said, hmm, well, you know, I am a photographer. So two weeks later, I landed in Phnom Penh. He picked me up at the airport and the rest is history. I spent about two and a half weeks with him traveling all over the country, doing projects about the law school, projects with the Maryknoll sisters about eradicating polio. We did things about the Khmer Rouge. We did go to uh, Wat, And that's what I want to talk about because in 1996— the Khmer Rouge still controlled sizable parts of the country, the northwest and the south. And to even get to the south, like I went down to a place called Kampat, which was, you might know now, it's close to a beach town called uh, Siunikville, which now I'm sure is just a party central place. But at the time, it was completely deserted. You couldn't even go to that village because the Khmer Rouge had killed people on that road um, right before we got there. And it was dangerous. So we hired a driver in the market and. Nampen and the guy said, look, you're going to lay down on the floor in the back seat. I'm going to go 100 miles an hour. People are probably going to shoot at us. We're not stopping for any reason until we get to Kampat. And then at night, you couldn't go out pr- basically anywhere. There was one time in particular I basically ran for my life uh, in Nampen with a group of guys coming at us in the middle of the night. We tried to make it back from I think it was like a UN meeting or something uh, back to our hotel and got about halfway there through this dark section of the city. There were hardly any streetlights at the time. And uh, we just saw these guys coming out of the woods at us from all directions. And we bolted. I I did my best Carl Lewis. Uh, There was no stand and fight. This was like, I'm getting to the hotel. And the hotel had a super cool guy in the lobby with an AK who basically made sure that those guys didn't get uh, any closer. And so it was an interesting time. So This uh, this other guy and I we flew to uh, to Siem Reap to go to the temples and I remember the runway having mortar holes uh, still on the runway when we landed in Siem Reap but when we got to the temples they were deserted the only people in the temples were monks and there were just a handful so I had Angor Wat to myself for hours and hours walking around and and as we were getting on a plane to fly to, to fly to Laos the pilot came on and said hey just so you know there's another temple. Called Bonte And Bonte had been closed for years, decades, and it was under Khmer Rouge control. Until about six months or six or eight months before we got there, and a professor from the University of Texas, which is where I went to school, and his wife um, had hired a military escort to go to Bonte and they got ambushed and by the Khmer Rouge and killed. And so the pilot comes on in our plane, and he says, hey, look, um, for those of you, Bontessere is now open. You have to hire a French military escort, but you can get back to see there. And so the guy I'm with stands up and says, i got to go see it. i got to go. I'm not going to Laos. I'm going to see the temples. And I said, okay, I'll go with you. So we get back there, and, of course, there's some kid with a rocket launcher who's with me the whole time, with an RPG, and he was great because it was a nice sort of human element in, in the te- these beautiful temples to have a kid with, a, with an RPG. But anyway, Cambodia was, the temples were were isolated, were deserted, and they were still what I would call pristine. And about 10 years ago, I talked to a friend of mine who's a photographer, and he had gone to Angkor Wat, and I said, how'd the photographs go? And he goes, I didn't shoot. And I said, what are you talking about? You went to Cambodia to shoot the temples. He goes, there were too many people. There were 5,000 people at sunrise, and I just couldn't get an image without you know tons and tons of tourists. And this idea of like tourism culture spawned by and, and driven by the internet fury of popularity, this is even prior to Instagram. Now it's a million times worse. There are places in my state here that are ruined because of Instagram, and a lot of other places that are being ruined because of Instagram and that desire to like be cool and to show things. And the tourist culture in Cambodia, even when I was there, they were talking of building amusement parks and hotels. In Siem Reap, and everyone said, you know, look, it's, it, it can't support this. It's going to bring all the wrong kinds of people. And so I look at the story that happened last week, and you read about these guys making, filming pornography or whatever, and it's not about pornography. It's just this, this culture of behavior that's turned places like Cambodia into rave party places, and, you know, people just come and they behave in these, like, despicable ways, and I'm not really sure what the solution to this is. I, I don't see it getting better. I, I see it getting worse before it gets better. I'm not sure what will break the, the camel's back here in terms of people saying, look, um, you know, we shouldn't do this anymore. I, I don't think there is a way to stop it. I think the phone and the popularity contest and everything is so powerful, and it's pushing and drawing these people. And, and apparently last week, there was a young woman who disappeared in Cambodia, and they found her. She, was, she passed away somehow. I think they're trying to research what happened, but potentially foul play. And she was at some rave in, in the jungle in Cambodia until like 3 in the morning or something. And I just thought, God, how things have changed. Because, again, back then, you know, they were still trying to, to get over this the, the Khmer Rouge having control in power in the country. And um, the tourist culture thing is kind of sickening. And Santa Fe, where I live, is one of the most popular tourist destinations in the country. And so I have to sort of—my life patterns around— specific times of year where the tourism here is so high and so intense that I have to leave or I can't go to certain places. You know, a few weeks ago it was peak fall colors. It was a Sunday. I was totally spaced out. I thought I'd get up for a run at about 9,000 feet and the Instagrammers were on the highway before I left the the town. That little two-lane road that runs up into the mountains was just chaos. It was gridlock and Instagrammers in the middle of the road and Law enforcement had areas cordoned off that they were letting people through one at a time. I've never seen this before. It was so terrifying. Okay, so if you have any, any solutions to tourist culture, let me know. The next part of this is gun culture. And this is kind of peculiar to me. And so my, my history with guns is probably different than you might imagine. So I grew up in the country— and guns were everywhere, right? And they were just sort of like a hammer or a post hole driver or an auger on the back of the tractor. They were a tool that you used for specific things. Hunting season, which I was never really a part of except for bird hunting. You know, I had a shotgun. I got my first shotgun when I was in elementary school. And we, as a family, would, we would bird hunt. You know, you'd hunt birds, eat birds, et cetera. And never really thought much about it. Had a rifle. As a kid, I had duties in Wyoming on the ranch where you had to have a rifle with you. And so that just became something normal that was in the truck like the rest of the tools. And, uh, you know, handguns were around as well, but hardly ever used. And I also, before I got into photography, I was a competitive shooter. So I shot competitive shotgun sports and uh, a little bit of pistol and rifle, but not much. It was primarily shotguns. And when I was younger, a coach for the U.S. national team, the Olympic team, saw me shooting when I was in middle school. And came up to my father and said, hey, if when your son's older, if he can academically qualify for a specific college, I'll give him a scholarship as a shooter, and we'll travel all over the world shooting. And my father was thrilled because he loved shooting more than I did. I was just good at it because I'd been doing it since I was a kid. So long story short, you know, I was going to go to college on a shooting scholarship. And there was a a problem with my transcripts coming in. The college lost half of all incoming transcripts. This was pre-digitization, so I ended up not going to that school. Ended up going to a community college for a semester where I found sort of accidentally backed into photography. But guns have always been around, and, um, you know, I'm not a big gun guy now, but I was most of my life in terms of just, you know, like I said, competing with these. I was not a collector. I was not going to gun shows, none of that stuff. Now, I think the NRA is completely batshit crazy. I think they've gone so far off the deep end. They've just become a political organization. They're not really a gun rights thing, so I'm not a fan of NRA. But the gun culture is an interesting dilemma for America because of how it's been built into our, our, our country and customs for, for you know forever. I do not have a solution. I don't even have a remote solution. I don't know how you take guns off the street. I don't know the fact that most of these guns are manufactured overseas. How do you keep them from coming in the country? I have no idea. All I know is there's a ton of people out there who have them that I really wish didn't have them. And then there's a lot of people who have them that you would never know because they, you know, were like bird hunters or deer hunters or, you know, whatever that happens around the country. But I think gun, gun culture is something that we obviously have to solve in some way, shape or form because... It's not gonna end well and it's not working right now. I mean, why a civilian would need something like an AR-15 to me is baffling because yes, I've shot AR-15s before. I was That was not a gun I was particularly interested in. I've shot all kinds of things, you know, the 44 mag Desert Eagle, all these sort of novelty guns. I've done shoot, you know, I've done all kinds of shooting with these things. They were just, you know, they were that a novelty where you shoot it once and be like, okay, great, I did that. But there's no use to have a gun like that. I'm not really sure what the, what the purpose of those are other, other than for warfare. So anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think this is a topic I've never spoken about before on here. And gun control is one of those things that, like politics and religion, people lose their ability to think rationally. And so one of the things that I think, I'm guessing that the majority of people who are listening to this are probably um, pro-gun control. And there's one thing that I think, if you are pro gun control, which is totally with totally your right to be that, is you have to understand the terminology of of uh, of the gun world. And many, I would say, even potentially most of the journalists that I hear speaking about this, especially on the cable networks, they don't have any understanding of what they're talking about. They're obviously anti gun, which I get pro gun control, but they don't understand basic terminology. And when you don't understand basic terminology and you throw out a phrase or description of a specific kind of gun you're trying to ban, and you think you're talking about a specific firearm when in fact you're talking about a general classification of firearm, it drives the pro-gun people insane because they say, look, I told you they're trying to ban all of these guns. And by that time, people have moved on. The journalists don't know what they're talking about. They haven't done their research. They don't know the nomenclature. They don't know the definitions, the terminology. This happens all the time. Pretty much every time I see a debate about gun control, I hear a journalist say, you know, they're trying to ban X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, "Mm, no, not really. You're trying to ban a flavor of X, Y, and Z, but not X, Y, and Z, which is making the situation worse. So we have to slow down. We have to stop. We have to back up. We have to define. We have to educate ourselves and then make a a plan moving forward. Because peace is far better than what we have happening in the States with all the shootings. It's just mind blowing. You know, Chances are that someone on this podcast is gonna be impacted if we already haven't been. So moving on, the last point is New York car culture. New York announced that they are going to expand their bike lanes dramatically to quote, break car culture. Now, this to me is why I have it last. That's overwhelmingly positive. I think that that's remarkable that New York has decided to do that. The flip side of this is there have been 25 cyclists killed in New York this year, which is far higher than in recent history, which is bad. And I think oftentimes in New York and in other places in the country, cyclists gets hit, killed, and the media and the locals and the politicians and everybody else says, oh, cyclist fault. There was a guy hit in Silver Lake last week. Again, I ran into a cyclist out here a couple of months ago over the summer, and his friend is one of the 25 killed in New York. So really nice to see this. I was in Paris a decade or so ago when the Parisians decided to turn the right lane into a bike lane, and the taxis went on strike and blocked traffic for a few days, and then it worked out. And people were like, you know, this is not as bad as I thought, et cetera, et cetera. This is the first crack here in the States that's really nice to see. Obviously, other cities have bike paths, and you have places like Boulder that are much more in tune and act activated long beach california seattle san francisco and i just learned that fort worth the mayor of fort worth is absolutely pro cycling and wants to turn fort worth into one of the best cycling destinations in the country which is odd because if you've ever been to fort worth that's not the first place that would jump out at you in terms of being a cycling mecca but who cares if they can turn the stockyards maybe into a bmx course that'd be kind of fun but anyway um Simultaneously, what happened in the background of this New York car culture announcement was another story that primarily ran in the Guardian because the American papers do, you know, we know who's pulling, pulling the strings and paying for things with a lot of American corporate media. Uh, and there's a lot of extraction companies that have their hands in that kitty. And something happened. And if you saw the book that I posted about a few days ago called The New Wild West, which was about the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota. Yesterday, there was a 350,000-gallon spill in the Keystone Pipeline. Now, this is the pipeline and the pipeline network that was uh, gained so much attention uh, through Standing Rock, where they were trying to run this next to the Native American reservation, and they were none too happy. There were protests. We sent the military in. We, we, we basically pulled off an unbelievable array of illegal activity to surveil and punish the people who were basically protesting that this pipeline went across their their land. And this brings up, you know, a topic that is not a real popularity contest winner here in the States, which is, and again, I'm putting myself at the head of this as being part of the problem. You know, I have a 2017 vehicle that has almost 50,000 miles on it, so I do my share of driving. And the pipeline companies are always quick to say, oh, we don't have spills. You know, oh, we monitor these very quickly, and the spills aren't that bad. Well, some of this stuff that's spilling, not this spill in particular, which was oil, but some of the materials that spill from things like fracking, once they pollute the land, the land's polluted for thousands of years. It's unusable. And so 350,000 gallons may not seem like a lot, but it's a lot. And now you're talking about the first thing that they will always say is, yes, it damaged some wetlands. Yes, it damaged some parts of the country. But no, it didn't affect the drinking water. Because remember, they're drilling down past the aquifers, the water aquifers, far, far, far down to get to the shale oil. So they're going through the aquifers to get to the shale oil. But their first defense is always, nope, there's no records you know, s- stating or testing that states that we've damaged the water supply. Which historically has been untrue. And that's all across the country. So when you see something like the Keystone Pipeline spill and... It, it's a reminder to us that we're living sort of the facade of we are a fossil fuel country. We burn three times more than than our share, and these spills are happening on a pretty regular basis, and it's something that we just can't forget about. You know, if every decision is reflective of something that is going to have an impact on a far larger scale. You know, it's consolidating your errands into one day a week. If this this is kind of something I've been daydreaming about, but let's say that you are hardcore political in one direction or the other you're a hardcore republican hardcore democrat one of the ways that you get people's attention in this country political attention imagine if on monday of next week the american population said we're not driving no one's driving do you realize the kind of fear that that would put in the political hierarchy in the united states because both both parties are taking money from from extraction if we said you know what this is non-driving week can you imagine what would happen if that if that consumption of fossil fuels stopped for any length of time so when you read a book like the book I mentioned last week and you realize the price you know the two dollar fluctuation in the price of oil and the impact it has on jobs you know and again so like I, I make mention of this scaring politicians. But conceivably, taking a break like that from driving as a collective, imagine how many people would be impacted financially job-wise. And a lot of these people are not deserving. They're trying to survive. You know. And working in the oil fields is one of the places where you can make real money. And a lot of these people have tried other things. They've had successful other careers. They're down on their luck or whatever it is, and they get up there, and they're trying to work. And it's a complicated thing. All of these are. Tourist culture, gun culture, car culture— these are not simple stories with simple solutions. You say, oh, well, you just you know ride a bike your whole life. Well, it doesn't work for most people. And then what happens to the people who work in the extraction communities to those jobs? How do you retrain them? Where do they end up? How much tourism is too much tourism? And if you've been limited financially your whole life, and suddenly the tourism industry is providing for your family while simultaneously destroying your culture, who am I as, a, as an outsider to say, hey, you shouldn't do that? So... I bring these up at the end to leave you with the idea of, to steal from Bill Gates, a think week. You know, this is the kind of thing we should sit down with a pen and paper by ourselves, quiet, no music, no internet, no television, and just think. Just pick an issue and say, hmm, tourism culture, or should Dan buy a Fuji X-Pro3 or Fuji R? I mean, something really critical to, to world society and culture like that and you say, you know, if i'm if i'm a staunch supporter of one political party, maybe i've got the other political party painted in a slightly unfair light because i've been, you know, jaded for so long. and that's i think a lot of us. i mean, we all have biased opinions about pretty much everything. so maybe it's time we just stop. we steal from bill. we do a think week, or maybe more realistically, we have a think hour where we just sit and we do nothing but try to come up with a solution to one of these situations or an idea or a suggestion. Or maybe we admit something we've done in the past that we probably wouldn't do again because now we have a better understanding of the idea. Okay, so let's recap. The hero was Federer. I talked about Facebook crimes and why anyone would still be on that platform. I'm I'm puzzled, please let me know if you're still on it and why you're there. I talked about Trump and his base and and the two-party system and corporate media and how it just doesn't work. You know, and for someone who's not watched TV for 15 years to be pulled back into it and watch it, It's kind of horrifying and it's so obvious that it doesn't work. So how do we fix it? What's next? The next point was what camera do I buy? If any, my guess is I won't buy any, but I can, a guy can dream, right? Uh, The next point was the AG23mag.com update on this collaboration. I have no idea what this is going to look like in the end run, but we should have a physical copy in our hands by the end of the year with two more slated for 2020, at least two more. I think we have budget for three, but that's going to be a lot to pull off because it's just the two of us trying to put this together, and it is a ton of work. It's a full time job on top of a full time job, which uh, should make it very easy for you to realize why I don't do much photography anymore. And the last point I made was three pronged it was the triad of culture, tourist culture, NRA culture, and car culture. And how do we fix these things? Is it worth fixing? Is it too late? Let me know your thoughts. And for the love of God, please go right now, stop what you're doing, don't walk, run to the local convenience store, and get as much eggnog as you can carry in your car, in your van, whatever transportation method you have, stock up and sling that stuff down. See you next week.